my name is Tim, one of the pastors here at the Bible Church, and Brandon just prayed that the Lord would, would come to life for us today, and that's my prayer as well. Can I ask you to grab your Bibles then, uh, or your phone, or whatever you're using today, and let's go to the, the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Matthew, then comes Mark chapter 14. There's a little note page in your bulletin if you're visiting today and don't know this part of the routine. Grab that note page out of your bulletin because that will be helpful along the way. And if you got out of the house and you would like a Bible and you didn't bring one with you this morning, just raise your hand. We can share a copy of God's Word with you. And so, church family, we have, we have wrapped up Ecclesiastes. And then last time, we enjoyed celebrating our dads. It was Father's Day last Sunday. And so today, if you look at that little note page, we're kicking off a little three-week mini-series titled, May I See Your ID, Please? Now, this is a question that we are all well acquainted with. Every time we turn around, we are being asked to prove to somebody that we really are who we say we are, whether we're using our credit card or cashing a check or applying for a school or looking for employment or visiting the doctor or getting on an airplane or opening a bank, an account at the bank, or any one of dozens of other possibilities, someone, it seems, is frequently asking us the question, may I see your ID, please? We expect this question. It's just part of modern life. In fact, we want this question asked of us because we live in a time when the crime of identity theft is literally exploding. We want this question asked to help ensure that someone is not wrongly impersonating us and agencies and airlines and banks and businesses. They want to make sure that we really are who we say we are. They want proof. They want something that identifies us. So, Taking this reality that is a part of our time and turning it in a spiritual direction, as a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and as those who have given our lives to Jesus in saving faith, were you to be asked, may I see your ID, please, Christian? What forms of ID might you produce? That's the question. We don't carry a card in our wallet or our purse. We, we, we don't have a, a notarized document that we keep in a fireproof safe somewhere. And, and I can't pull out my I'm a Christian card from my, my billfold. So what forms of ID might we produce if someone says, may I see your ID, please, Christian? Our first thought might be to say, well, I, I, I guess it's my life, uh, The way I live my life, my thoughts, my words, my actions, they are my ID as a Christian. And we wouldn't certainly be far off the mark if that was our answer. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.2 that that those followers of Jesus were letters that were read by everybody. Paul looked at the Corinthian Christians and said, "Uh, you're a letter that is read every day by people looking at your life. So my life in Jesus is my ID. And if that was your response, that's not a bad answer, though it is a little bit general and uh, it's not always the best answer if if we're not in step with the Lord. And that is true for all of us at various points along the way when pride and sin get in the way. 
But I do believe that the Word of God can put a finer point on all of this for us. And that is what we want to think about for just a few weeks together. As those who profess allegiance to Jesus Christ, we do have, brothers and sisters, some forms of ID that we can produce that are recognized by heaven and they are valid wherever we go. In fact, we would have three forms of ID that we could call upon. One is our genuine and regular participation in the observance of communion or the Lord's table. A second is our obedience to Jesus' command to be baptized, and Brandon referenced that a moment ago during announcement time. And a third would be our personal identification with Jesus' church, our involvement in a local church where Jesus and God's word are at the center. Three forms of ID, remembering Jesus' saving death often in our Christian life, being baptized once, and being invested in Jesus' church personally and practically all of the time. Three forms of ID. And as you can tell there on your note page, today we're going to zero in on the first of these. We're going to zero in on communion. It doesn't matter how long that we have been a Christian or, or how many times we have, have gathered at this table and shared the bread and the cup in remembrance. To be invited on a Sunday morning to reconnect again with the truths, the beauty, the, the, the meaning, the promises that are a part of the sacred table Well, that is always appropriate. There's never a bad time for us to be doing that. Would you agree? And so there we are. We're we're in this place in this moment. Now, as we begin, let me ask you to first take a look at several images that we've put up on the screen. And I'd like to ask you to identify what is the common thread that ties all five of these images together. What is it that, 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 that they're all connected by? There's a common theme that is associated with all five of these. What is that? What's that? They are all memorials, right? They're all memorials of one kind or another. They call to our minds just the moment that we see them. They call to our minds a person or perhaps persons who have died. They are all ways that we come up with to preserve the memory of those who have, have died, whether they be kings in ancient times, outstanding leaders in more modern times, whether they are brave soldiers who fell or whether they are ordinary citizens who were uh, taken out on 9-11. We have these memorials. We're well acquainted with memorials. Church family, before us this morning, is a memorial. Would you agree? We have a memorial in front of us this morning. Not giant stone structures, no statues, no no polished granite inscriptions. Amazingly, the materials of this particular memorial are incredibly fragile. Just a simple table on which rests some unleavened bread and some grape juice. And yet I can say with full confidence this morning that this memorial will remain when all of those others that we just saw have turned to dust. We call this memorial communion or the Lord's.
Lord's table or the Lord's supper or the table of remembrance. All of these are terms that we're familiar with. But what exactly is this communion table all about? What was its beginning? What specifically does it mean? How should we view it? How should we approach it? How should we share it together as a church family? It was none other than the Lord Jesus himself, God in the flesh, who left this memorial to us. What was he thinking when he did that? These are some of the questions that we're going to be chasing down here this morning. For some, this will be sacred and cherished truth that you have known for a long time. We're not going to be probably sharing anything that you aren't well acquainted with. But for some among us today, maybe this table isn't all that well understood by you. Perhaps because you've never had the opportunity to sit down and spend some time talking about the table its origin, its meaning, its practice, why it's part of church life and and why it's part of the Christian's identity and faith. So whether well-known or whether barely known, our Bibles are open to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Let's see what the Holy Spirit has for us today, brothers and sisters. And we'll begin, as you see there from your note page, we're going to begin with a context for communion. As good Bible students, we are always wanting to be context aware, never just yanking stuff out of Scripture uh, without taking a look at the context. And so here's where we begin. So we step into Mark's account of the moment when Jesus created the table of communion memorial. Mark tells us in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14 that Judas has already met with the Jewish religious leaders and he's agreed to deliver Jesus into their hands for a price whenever the opportunity becomes available for him to do that. So here's where we pick it up, verse 12 of chapter 14. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. We'll stop right there for just a second. With Mark and with the help of the other gospel accounts, we know that we are in the very heart of Passion Week, the name that is given to the last week of of Jesus' life leading up to the cross. We call that Passion Week. And so it is actually Thursday, and it is the day that something called the Passover celebration is going to take place. The highest, holiest day in the Jewish calendar year was Passover day. And we're at that moment. This sacred celebration is going to get underway just after sunset on this Thursday evening. And then by 9 o'clock in the morning on Friday, Jesus will be on the cross. The price that will pay for our sin debt 
is about to be paid in full by Jesus. We are right there in that moment. Now, just from what we have read of Mark's account, it's plain to see that Jesus has given this Passover evening careful attention. He is way ahead of the disciples as he gives them this instruction. So why such attention by Jesus? Why such care? Well, brothers and sisters, could it be that he knows he's about to eat the most important meal in the history of the world and he desires to be the master of it on every level right down to the meal's location and the setting? Could it be? Yeah, it could be. At this meal, he will forever identify himself as the one and only true Passover lamb. There are no accidents in this moment. Nothing that is just unfolding uh, without God's careful orchestration. His body offered, his blood poured out as the price of our redemption. That's going to be symbolized at this table, at this meal, symbolized by the bread and the cup that are going to be a part of this special time. The disciples will grasp none of it really in the moment. But after Jesus' resurrection, they will remember and they will put it all together. They're going to get it. They don't get it on this night, but they're going to get it. And so Jesus wishes to control every facet of such an important and sacred moment. But I would suggest that there is one other reason for Jesus' personal attention in these kinds of ways. It's a way for him to remind you and me, 2,000 plus years separated from this night, to remember that Jesus is not the unwilling victim uh, murdered by jealous, evil, religious, and political leaders. Jesus is in total control of everything that is happening. He is orchestrating all that is unfolding. It's happening as he wishes, at his pace and in his time. His death is going to be on his own terms and in his own way. And and in even controlling this meal, right down to these little details, is communicating that to us. Verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Stop again. So as the Passover meal gets underway, Jesus drops a a, a bombshell. There there is a betrayer in the midst of them. I mean, this just comes out of the blue. They they have no idea that this is going to be said. Of course, we all know who the betrayer is. It is Judas. But in this moment, no one suspects Judas. I mean, he ought to be, I think, the very first recipient of an Academy Award. Because his, his acting is impeccable. The disciples have no idea that he's the betrayer. They are stunned by this revelation. And since the meal is already underway and several of the disciples have dipped into the bowl with Jesus, Judas is not identified. I mean, had he been identified, you can be sure of one disciple, Peter, who would have come across that table and put Judas in an MMA chokehold right then and there, right? Because that's, that's just who Peter was, right? 
A treachery, the treachery of Judas here, his actions are amplified by the fact that in Middle Eastern culture, as in Arab culture today, to share a meal with somebody was to say to them, you're my friend, I will not harm you. You were saying that. Judas was was saying that. He he dips his hand in the, the bowl that Jesus is using, knowing full well, that he is going to sell Jesus out. And so it is a cold-blooded act. Many think Judas was right next to Jesus on this evening at the table because immediately after this, John will tell us in his parallel account of this moment in John 13, 27, that Jesus leans over and says to Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. Judas gets up and and he leaves with no one suspecting any evil on his part. Uh, This may be also because there was a tradition that was a part of the Passover evening in which gifts were given to the poor. And and since Judas was the keeper of the money bag for the disciples, uh, they suspect maybe that Judas was, was heading out to take care of this tradition on behalf of all of them. He would distribute some gifts to the poor. So they don't give any thought when Judas gets up. And even as Judas is, is getting to his feet, Jesus says to him in verse 21 of chapter 14, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. There's a quick glance back by Judas as he exits the room, and then he is gone into the night. And in this artist's depiction, you can see a shadow over in the left-hand corner of Judas. So here's verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And Luke adds that Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you, Matthew adds in his account, with you in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We'll stop there. So this then is the context for the communion celebration. It's the Passover meal. Our our remembrance comes out of that that moment. And here's where a short history lesson will help us, I think, to more fully appreciate what Jesus is doing. Some 1,450 years before this night in Jerusalem, when the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt... God sent them Moses to be their liberator. Moses comes to Egypt's Pharaoh with a very clear message from God. God says, let my people go. The Egyptian king is stubborn. He refuses. God brings a series of terrible plagues upon the land and upon the people of Egypt. But the Pharaoh refuses to liberate the Jewish slaves. And so God says, I'm going to bring a tenth and final devastating plague. This plague will break Pharaoh's stubborn will. It will be the death of the firstborn of every family in Egypt. That's the judgment for this hard heart. 
So the Hebrew firstborn are going to be spared this horrific loss, but only if they follow specific instructions that God is going to give. All the details for this can be found in in the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 12. If you want to go back maybe this week and and pick up on that in more detail. But if if I, I just could summarize, each Hebrew household was to kill an unblemished male lamb, capture its blood in a basin, and then apply that blood to the doorposts and the upper frame of their homes. God would spare the firstborn in all the land of Egypt that night, but only if the people were in the house and the blood was on the door. God's judgment would pass over that house. And those inside would be protected by the blood. Those lives would be saved. And so thus we come to this name, Passover. It all happens just as God said that it would happen with horrific loss for the Egyptians and with all of the Hebrews who are under the blood covering being spared. God then commanded his people to remember. Remember this deliverance from bondage throughout all your generations with a meal, which would be called the Passover meal. So here we are in Mark, 1,450 years later, with Jesus and his disciples and the rest of Israel observing that memorial. Except in this moment, Jesus is going to change forever the significance and the ultimate meaning of the Passover. Knowing his arrest and torture and crucifixion are, are now just hours away, Jesus is ready to fulfill the role that his heavenly father had sent him to earth to fulfill in the first place. He will become, as John the Baptist announced, as he saw Jesus three years before in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What was John referring to? Jesus. As that Passover Lamb who would deliver sinners from sin's enslaving bondage and from God's just and right judgment. Centuries earlier in Egypt, those who wished to be saved from death and and to be free had to be under the blood of the Passover lamb. If the firstborn wasn't under the blood of the lamb, they died. But all of that was just a picture. It was just a, a painting, if you will, by God to point people to the real lamb of God, whose name was Jesus. He will become in reality what the ancient Passover lamb was just merely a shadow of. The parallels between the lamb and between Jesus are are unmistakable. Both were innocent. Both had to be unblemished males. Both were, were, were required to save the lives of others by the giving of their own life. In fact, even the imagery of the cross is visible in that Old Testament picture, isn't it? You stop and think about it, the blood on the, on the, the side posts and then over the lintel. What is that a picture of? 1,450 years before it happens, that's a picture of the cross of the Lord Jesus. No wonder the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Amen? Amen. 
So Jesus here in Mark 14 transforms the Passover meal that that celebrated the, the deliverance of Jewish slaves into a celebration of an infinitely greater deliverance, a deliverance of sinners from slavery to sin and a deliverance from certain spiritual death and separation from God in hell forever. Jesus accomplishes that. He takes an ancient Jewish meal, rich in meaning, and he makes it into something brand new. And the bread and the cup that were part of that Passover meal, well, Jesus takes those and he assigns to them new meaning, new significance. The bread will become the symbol of Jesus' body that will bear the blows of punishment and death that were meant for you and me. Take, Jesus says, this is my body. Verse 22, and and the the cup will become a symbol of Jesus' blood poured out before God to pay our sin debt, allowing God's judgment to pass over us. Verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant. A covenant means a promise, a promise from God to save sinners. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You are in that word many. I am in that word many. Take these truths into your life by faith, Jesus says. Eat them by faith. Drink them by faith. And and make them part of you. And the just judgment of a holy God passes over you. There's no power to save in a crumb of bread. There's no power to save in a cup of juice. The power is in the one that these objects point to, yes? Amen. And so today, those who wish to be saved from God's just and righteous judgment upon sin must be under the blood of Jesus by faith. I must believe, you must believe what Jesus did on the cross, he did for you. I have to believe that he did that for me. Only then does this meal, this table become significant for us. So from out of this setting and using these elements, Jesus creates a memorial to himself that is more important, more enduring, more sacred, more holy than the most impressive granite monument, marble statue or ancient pyramid. And also that we will never forget what he has done. Never forget, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Identify yourself with me through this table. It's part of our ID. And so that's the context out of which comes our communion celebration. It was a much anticipated precious moment for Jesus and one that he wants to oversee in every single detail. For he knew that it would become part of our identification of all who would follow him in faith as a way of regularly recalling his life given for us. But now that that Mark has brought us to this sacred place of thinking about communion, let's take that one step further, church family, and just be reminded for a moment, before we come to the table ourselves, be reminded of the commands of communion. If you flip that little note page over, Let's go in that direction. So take your Bible, if you would, leave Mark's gospel, run to the right, 
past Luke, past John, past Acts and Romans. The next book you'll come to is the book of 1 Corinthians and land in chapter 11, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I love to hear the pages turn. Thank you. That's great. I can't do that with your phone, but I can sure do it when you got the book in your lap. That's great. Now, if you know much about the, this, this New Testament book, you know that it was a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that had a lot of problems. And in this letter, Paul addresses many of this church's struggles. Well, among the problems that they had was one that centered on the communion table, the table of remembrance, the Lord's Supper, and how they were sharing it. And, and how they were approaching it as a church family. He addresses a problem. The memorial that Jesus had left to help his followers stay faithful and focused and effective for him was being abused in this church. It was being distorted to the point that it hardly looked like anything that Mark is sharing with us out of Jesus' story. The table had been misused to such a degree, in fact, that Paul refuses it to call it the Lord's Supper at all. And he comes right out and says that here. So let's pick it up. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I mean, Paul is really strong here. He's, he's agitated in soul. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, so there's no no counting or time constraints or number of times we should or shouldn't do this. Whenever you drink the bread and the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we were judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. We'll stop there. 
We read these strong words to these believers and it becomes instantly apparent that there is a right way and there is a wrong way to come to this table. Or to use Paul's terminology in verse 17, for better or for worse. As we look at what Paul says to these Christians, we we hear him saying three things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Three commands to any church or any individual who claims to be a lover of Jesus and gathers at this table whenever that happens. First is the command to look around. Paul begins by telling these Christians to look around and, and think about how they're treating their Christian brothers and sisters. In verse 18 he says, There are divisions among you. Now that word divisions, it translates a a Greek word that means to rip or to tear. By your attitudes towards each other, Paul says, you are tearing your church apart and you don't even see it. You're blind to it. But that's what you're doing. The Corinthians were gathering for a meal and people would bring food and Just like we do from time to time, we gather here as a church family. We bring all of our food together, and and they weren't sharing their food. They were bringing their food to to the gathering, but they weren't sharing it. Those who brought a little had nothing to eat. Those who brought a lot pigged out and didn't share a single bit of it with brothers or sisters. So some watched and some got, just got fat. All of this was done in the name of Jesus and in the name of fellowship, after which apparently they then stepped right in to the communion table. And Paul says, wait a minute, time out, time out. Where's the care? Where's the concern and the love for one another that is to characterize a church that bears Jesus' name? On the very same night that Jesus institutes the communion memorial, he also says this to his disciples, John chapter 13, 34, 35, a new commandment I give you that you what, church? When you love one another, just as I have loved you, you love each other. That wasn't happening in Corinth. By this all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. There's nothing in the Corinthian fellowship in this moment that reflects this kind of heart. Paul says, your actions are showing everyone how self-centered and divided you are, not how loving and united you are. And then he makes this point in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You can't correctly celebrate Jesus' remembrance table when you've got that kind of a heart, he says. So when we hear at IBC come together and we we share Jesus' table, the first thing we want to do is look around. Look around. Are my relationships as they should be, free of selfishness and, and, and petty division and resentment and lovelessness for a brother or a sister who is sharing this room with me in this moment? Paul, spirit-inspired, would would say we would be far wiser not to draw near this table than to draw near with, with, with anything less than a genuine heart of affection and care for one another. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It's Jesus' heart. And then Paul would say, after you look around, well, then look back. 
look back and remember. Clearly, our time around the table is supposed to help us to recall regularly that moment when heaven's holiness and justice were satisfied by the death of Jesus on a cross. Paul quotes Jesus in verse 24. This is my body which is for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. In the same way, the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in what, church? Remembrance of me. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus says, do this. Identify with me. Celebrating communion in a worthy manner demands that we remember. But we ask, remember what? Remember what, Jesus? Well, How about the agony? The agony of Jesus' soul praying in the garden. How about remembering the betrayal of a friend, the disciples' abandonment and leaving him alone, the the mock trials before Pilate and then before Herod and then back to Pilate again through that long night, the beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorns. How about we remember the parade of the condemned through the city streets as Jesus carries his cross? How about the nails in his hands and in his feet? How about the religious leaders taunting and the soldiers gambling for his clothing? And how about the sponge dipped in sour wine? And worst of all, how about we remember the terrifying words from Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus became sin for us and the wrath of God fell full upon him. We're to remember all of that when we come to this table. Why are we commanded to remember his body offered up and his blood poured out? Why? Because his death is our life. Amen? His death is our life. It's the means by which we are saved from an eternal separation from holy God. And we must never forget or treat this moment casually, carelessly. To do so is to be in step with the Corinthian believers who weren't giving any thought to such things. Do this in remembrance of me. So look around when you come to the table. Look back and then come to this table Rightly by looking within. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Brothers and sisters, could it be any more plain? As Paul writes this confused church, he says, before you come here to this table, you do a serious bit of self-examination. Now, that word examine that Paul uses here, it's a revealing word. It's a word that was used in Paul's day to refer to refining metal. Raw ore was heated in a crucible to its melting point, and then it was stirred, and, and this, this allowed the impurities in the, in the metal to rise to the top, and then the dross would be skimmed off, and then the metal would be stirred more, and more dross would come to the top until finally the refiner could see a, a clear reflection of himself in the molten metal. The impurities he knew then had been removed. And that's the word Paul uses. So when we examine ourselves, we're, we're looking for the dross. 
the impurities, looking for those places where, where sin has infiltrated our lives as a Christian, our thoughts, our words, or our actions. And we look for those impurities and we invite the Holy Spirit to expose that dross and then we confess those things that are revealed. We confess those to God. We examine ourselves exposing what remains of sin, confessing it, calling upon the blood of Jesus that that removes the penalty. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. We come to this table. We avail ourselves of that verse. Deal with the dross, Paul says, and then come. So, brothers and sisters, we cannot properly come to this table this morning without obedience to these commands. Looking around, looking back, looking within. And when we do that, Jesus invites us to come and to be positively identified with him. And that's what we're going to do now, church family. We've talked about it. Are you ready to do it? To share in it? So let's do that. Let's begin in this way. Let's begin by just creating a quiet space for you to do exactly what we've been talking about. Look around. Look back. Look within. The worship team will come on to the platform and and you're going to be coming this morning and uh, coming up to the front and taking the bread and the cup back to your seat where you will take it on your own in that quiet, sacred moment, just you and the Lord Jesus, and you'll be doing these things. Whenever you hear the worship team begin to play, that would kind of be your indication that you could come forward, get the elements, take them back to your seat, and take them as you determine to take them. The one thing I would say is this. If you've yet to settle the question of who Jesus Christ is in your life, do not come to this table. It would not be right for you to do so. You would be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Settle the question, who is Jesus going to be in your life? Savior and Lord? Then the table belongs to you. And if that is something that you have already done, then of course... We welcome you to be a part of this time. So let's go before the Lord. Let's look back. Let's look around. Let's look within. Church family, let's pray.